Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Sue Heilbronner, and you might know that this is a third in a series, a little mini series on living kidney donation. So if you haven't heard the first and second in this series, go back, go back to Apple or SoundCloud and listen to those because they're really cool and they're going to make this episode even more interesting. In this episode, which you're about to hear, you'll hear a conversation between me and Neshika Nash, who is one of the most experienced people in the living kidney donor space. She's going to tell you everything you need to know about how to think about this and how to do it if it's something about which you or someone you know is thinking seriously. She'll also provide some insights on ways that you as an employer, if you happen to run or own a company, might make life easier for people who want to do living kidney donation at your company. So up next, my conversation with Nesh. I hope you enjoy it. And now I'm happy to be joined by Neshika Nash. She goes by Nesh, and to keep things easy, that's how I'll probably refer to her. Hello, Nesh. Hi, how are you, Sue? Great. Thanks so much for joining us. The reason we wanted you to be with us is that you spent 10 years working in the living kidney donor department doing coordination of living donors and patient education. We are so glad that you were willing to join us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. This is a passion of mine. Wonderful. I know you've moved on now from the University of Colorado, which is where you were for those 10 years, and you now work in a private lab, but I understand you're still in the organ donation area. Is that right? Yes. Um, I now work at the lab that does the cross matches and HLA, just some vernacular, but we are the lab that takes the blood from the recipient donor, mixes it, and determines if it would be a possible match for the patients who are on the list. That's wonderful. So. What drew you to the area of organ donation and transplant? Well, it was a complete accident. I was actually a college student uh, studying biology and French. I went to the hospital to start a job that was more clinical. I was a manager of a store at the time and, of course, needed clinical hours. I wanted to go on to med school. And um, when I went and got my job, they, they went over some options. And there was a living donor uh, coordinating department. And they said, this would be such an interesting job. And I was really shocked because I, as someone who was into science and wanting to go on in medicine, didn't know much about living donation. And I agreed to take that job and start. They were in their very nascent part of the, the department on building living donation. It was a one-person job at the time. And I worked directly with a nurse who taught me everything because it was just so early on. And I fell in love with it, talking to patients, learning about just a miraculously interesting part of medicine, which is transplantation, and learned that you can actually be a living kidney and living liver donor. I was working specifically with kidney, but it opened my eyes to something I had no clue about. And it's that new? I mean, living donation really is only something that's gotten very, very well distributed in this country in the last 10 or 15 years? It's not, it's not 10 or 15 years. We had some pioneers on our teams at the hospital as far as the 60s and 70s. 
But with the education going out and people knowing about living donation and the advancements with immunosuppressant uh, drugs, so that recipients were able to take kidneys and organs from people who were not related to them, it's not 10 or 15 years, more like the 30 or 40. But when you look in the terms of medicine, modern medicine, that is considered something that is pretty new. But as far as the popularity and gaining popularity, within the last 20 years, living donation and a lot of transplant centers and hospitals really developing and determining that this is a part of medicine that they need to concentrate on. It's definitely not as old as dialysis or uh, kidney disease education. I know a little bit about sort of the evolution of drugs just at a personal level because my father received a kidney transplant about 30 years ago. He's no longer living. Oh, but okay. my brother received a transplant from a living donor three years ago. And the amount of drug, immunosuppressant drug, that he's having to take is about 20% of what our father had to take 30 years ago. So it's really been quite an evolution, which is really exciting. It is. It absolutely is. Those drugs are the reason a 50-year-old... Irish person could donate to a 32-year-old young black guy because what we have in our DNA, our alleles, what makes our genetic makeup, and also, now that I work in HLA, that's basically your fingerprint, who you are, what your immune system recognizes. It knows when it's not your kidney. So without those drugs, this part of medicine would not be able to uh, proceed. That's amazing. So I want to talk to you about so much, but the first thing I want to talk to you about are the most common questions you've heard over the time you've been in this area, all of your career at this point. What are the most common questions you've heard from people who are considering being living donors? The most important question that I get that I completely understand is, is this safe? Is this going to put me at risk for kidney disease later on in my life? And with the education uh, that most pretty much universal is there's always risk with surgery. We would never tell someone that this is a 100% guarantee that nothing will happen. But in the field of living kidney donors, you are so scrutinized as a donor, head to toe. If there's anything wrong with you, the team is going to find it. And because of this medical scrutiny, because you are going through so many tests, physical exams, meeting with surgeons, lots of education, we are able to tell patients that the risk is very minimal for those who go through with a living donation because you've been deemed one of the healthier people in the population. Um, It does not increase your risk of death. It does not put you at risk for kidney disease. In fact, living donors have a lower chance of developing any type of kidney disease than the general population because, as I mentioned before, they are generally in better health. So they're they're healthy people. And tell us a little bit about the process. I imagine as an educator and as a coordinator of these people, you've seen a lot of journeys. Now, on this podcast, we're talking to a person who was a living donor and also to someone who received a living donation from a stranger. But tell us a little bit about what someone could expect from the process from the very minute they see something on Facebook or hear about a friend who needs a kidney, number one, What should they do when they hear it? Usually they might, I guess in the scenario I described, they'll get a link to an office, probably to a person like what you used to be. Yes, that's correct. 
So let's talk about that scenario first. They get that link, they click on that link, they probably send an email. What happens next? So at the beginning, it was me personally fielding every single call. I talked to every single person, got their background and did a brief physical over the phone to determine if they could go to the next step. Now, most centers are to the point where you do get a link, you click on a questionnaire and they're going to ask you basic health related questions such as what is your height and weight? They are going to look at BMI, your, your body mass index, which is the correlation between your height and weight to determine if it's at a healthy point that you can move forward. Most kidney-related diseases are uh, very closely related to hypertension and diabetes, so that's why they look at your weight. They want to know if you're at risk for developing these later on if, if your BMI is too high or um, transversely too low if you would be healthy enough to withstand surgery. They're going to ask about some familial history with kidney disease, cancers, cardiovascular disease, and then they're going to ask you what your motivations are, um, if you have insurance or not, if you have a support system system. And usually that's the first profile that you do. If you pass that with sufficient answers and what they think is safe enough for you to proceed, you'll go on to the next part of the questionnaire, which is very in-depth. Every surgery you've ever had, any medical complications, any times you've been hospitalized, what vitamins or over-the-counter or prescribed medications you take, um, and they'll get a really good picture of if you're able to move forward. From there, it's submitted. It is reviewed by a nurse coordinator. All of these nurses are trained in a transplant. They're going over your questionnaire to determine um, if there's any red flags or anything they missed. And they will give you a call back and they'll let you know if, yay, you are a donor, we want to move on to go to preliminary testing, or if there's something they need to clarify or follow up on that you've answered within the questionnaire. That's the very first step. It's always a questionnaire meeting with someone to get your health history. Okay, so up to now, if I'm thinking about doing a donation to a specific person in the scenario described, I could be living in Massachusetts, the person who needs the kidney could be in Colorado, and I could do everything you've just described without getting on a plane, right? In some instances, it just depends on the center, I will say. We've had patients when I was in the transplant center who did all of their screening back home and then they flew in for their pre-op or they flew in for their evaluation. So a lot of these first steps can be done where you are locally. So if you have a recipient in Colorado, and like you said, you're in Massachusetts, if they've deemed that you can move forward, you can go to your local hospital and get what the next steps are, what we call preliminary uh, testing. Usually that consists of you doing a 24-hour urine exam, which is collecting your urine for 24 hours or testing for a toxin called creatinine, which is secreted by the kidneys. This will tell us basically if your kidneys are doing their job. And they'll also do a blood draw to correlate that. Um, some transplant centers want you to do a lipid panel, cholesterol, where you're fasting, go in and get your blood drawn. Anything else that they want you to do, they'll mention it within that first battery of tests. Those can usually be sent in and those can be done locally so you don't have to get on a plane and fly back and forth. Okay, so they're evaluating your intent and your general health and your mm -hmm. motivations. Is the center also evaluating the match to the person this person is theoretically hoping to donate to at this time or does that happen later? In concrete, it happens a little later. 
at first they will ask you questions like what is your blood type a lot of people get it confused that your blood type has to be the same I would always correct patients your blood type needs to be compatible so if you are a blood type O for instance that is a universal donor pretty much any person can take your blood type so you can donate to an A that's not the same, but that is a compatible blood type. So that type of thing is done kind of on the surface. Now, when you get to the part where I work now, the lab, that is usually done during the evaluation stage where they take a vial of blood from the donor, a vial from the recipient, they mix it in a lab, and then they'll get the results. This result will tell us it's either positive or negative, positive meaning there was a reaction, this kidney probably will be rejected. Negative meaning it's clean, looks like we would be able to transplant and control the immune system response. So this person has now, the potential donor, has gone through these hoops. Just in your experience, how many people will you end up talking to about a specific donation to a specific person before you might find one who passes all the motivation tests and the health requirements? So that's a very interesting question that kind of has many dimensions. When I started the patient education part, we had a program called Donor Champion, and a lot of these people were loved ones that took it into their own hands to kind of make the world aware of what their loved one needed. So I would have some patients who would get on the news and I would get hundreds of calls literally hundreds of calls. And what the transplant center's policy was at that time is we want to get all the information from anyone who's interested because we will have backups, but all we need is one. So if a person comes through, let's say we're looking at a 50-year-old healthy woman and we have donors who are 20, we have donors who are 65, we have donors who might be laid off at the time or that uh, might have just have been cleared for cancer screenings. We're going to look at the best person to start with. Who do we think is the best match on paper? Most centers will go through with that one donor until they reach an endpoint, either surgery or some testing that tells us that we're unable to do that. Yes. Interesting. Now, with a lot of these donors who come forward and maybe the doctors are saying, this is a person we want to preemptively look at everyone, they make those kind of decisions one-on-one, they might say, let's put more than one person through the preliminary testing. But as a general rule, most of the transplant centers are going to look at one donor all the way through. So the preliminary testing, it could be multiple, depends on the center, not all centers are the same. But when it comes to that evaluation process, which is very, very in-depth, and consisting of a lot of those tests, that's usually one person at a time. Okay. You've, you just alluded to some age ranges, and it sounded like you were making some assumptions based on your knowledge that I wasn't mm-hmm. familiar with. So I understand that the ideal living donor is healthy, has motivations to be of service, you know, obviously no monetary motivations or anything like that, stuff that would be illegal. But what does the perfect donor look like beyond that? You sort of suggested that a 50-year-old person might be better than a 20-year-old person? Well, I I don't want to make that suggestion. I'm saying even when it comes to age, over the age of 62 or so, a lot of centers will start to look at it on an individual basis. We've had some very healthy 65-year-old donors step forward. 
but you also want to look at to whom the person is donating. Do we necessarily want a 65-year-old to donate to an 18-year-old kid? This person at 65, we've had people who have run marathons. Um, Colorado is a pretty healthy state, so I'm speaking in, in terms of, of this populace. But how is the recipient going to uh, take a kidney that, you know, already been used for 68 years? Kidneys do have wear and tear. So when it comes to the perfect donor, a lot of times it also depends on the recipient as well. Okay, that's super helpful. Thank you for that. Your expertise really shines through in how you talk about this. Oh, thank you. So we didn't talk about this scenario, and I'd like to hear your thoughts which is the anonymous donor. In fact, the person who I'm interviewing on this podcast made an anonymous donation. She walked in, she volunteered to donate, she set off a big chain, I think eight recipients. How common is that? And for people who are considering being an anonymous donor, what should they do? I'm so thankful that it has become more common. When I started about 10 years ago, if I were to put a number on it, just a hypothetical, that anonymous call was probably one in 20 that I got. And by the time I transitioned to a new role, it was probably one in five. The education that I would give anonymous donors was essentially the same. The one test that will be added that most donors who are related or have a relationship with don't have to do is at some centers they will ask for a psych evaluation. Now, some centers have added that to all donors that have stepped forward, but there are still a few that if you are anonymous, that's the one test that is going to be one step forward past the social worker. You'll see uh, a psychiatrist as well. But as far as the process goes, the only thing that is different is during your evaluation, we don't have a recipient to mix your blood with. So you'll do your HLA, which is learning who your self is in the immunology sense, you know what self is. They'll tell you what that all maps out, what your alleles look like. But you won't have someone to immediately mix the blood with because we don't know who your recipient is going to be. Now, at my center, they used to give a choice. You can donate in the list of people that are on the transplant list at the University of Colorado, or you can go into what is called paired exchange. Now I think everyone just goes into paired exchange. That is where we can maximize your donation. It is one of those things that um, I, I quickly saw transition. When I first started, if you were a healthy donor, wrong blood type, and you didn't have a cross match that worked, we sent you away. We watched healthy kidneys walk out the door. Wow. Yes, now if you're an anonymous donor and we don't know who to match you with or uh, a match isn't compatible, there is something called the exchange program where you go in on behalf of your recipient. We know that you're not a match or you don't have a match yet. We find someone for you to donate to and to pay it forward. Their donor who doesn't match them as well donates to someone else and so on and so forth, which causes these donation chains you might have read about in the news. So anonymous donors have the benefit of helping more than one person with their one donation immediately because they already can be offered to go into uh, a paired exchange program. That's wonderful. Now, I do want to be sure I get this. If I'm sitting in Ann Arbor, Michigan or Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I'm listening to you talk right now, 
what's the first thing I should do if I want to consider being an anonymous or altruistic kidney donor? The first thing you should do is contact your local center. If you saw something on Facebook and you even it would still be considered anonymous if you saw a person's face or their plea and that's the specific person you want to help, contact their center. If they're in Colorado, if they're in New York, if they're in California, contact their center. But if you just see something in general and you're thinking about being a donor, you can go on a website, S as in Sam, R as in Robot, T as in Tom, R as in Robot, srtr.org, put in your zip code, and they will bring up all of the transplant centers in your area. That's wonderful. Yes, and you can contact that transplant center. Most have a website, or you can call them, get in touch with their coordinator to do your initial screening. That's terrific. That's so helpful. Thank you. I'd never heard that website, so that sounds like the perfect place. You're welcome. There's a little bit of debate in my community around why more living donor kidney donation doesn't happen. And the various opinions are, of course, some people are afraid or their doctors tell them not to because it's unnecessary risk. We've heard the argument that if I do an altruistic donation and then someone in my family needs one in the future, I won't be able to give one. That's another argument I've heard. My personal belief is that people just have no idea that you can do this. And that's why you're talking to us today. What do you think is the most common reason more people, and I love that you said there are more people doing it than there were even a few years ago. That's amazing. But what do you think about this question? Absolutely. It's the general population does not know that this is something that they can do. As I mentioned, I was studying science. I had volunteered at hospitals. The most common response I got when uh, I was running the donor champion program, and this is where we trained friends and family on behalf of the recipient to start a campaign to find potential donors, they would approach people who were just like me and would say, oh, no, I, I have that red heart on my license. That's how we do it in Colorado, the little red heart. Colorado is one of the leaders in the nation. Uh, people go to the DMV or they can do it online, put that little red heart that says, I am willing to be a donor in the event of my passing. I thought that that was it. I think your view is the most prevalent. There are those fringe populations that say, well, you know, I'm scared, I'm worried. What happens if I need a kidney in the future or a family member does? Most people do not know that you can donate your kidney and live a healthy life with one kidney after donation. And a lot of people don't know that you can donate to a stranger or someone you're not genetically linked to. One of the most famous campaigns we had is a patient of mine and she's given me permission. She's actually in the news, so it's, it's a worldwide case, um, whose husband put his name and my number, my work number at the time, on the back of his tailgate of his truck. We got hundreds of inquiries on Facebook. It shut down the hospital operation system. What? Yeah, it was. Well, they had to expand my voicemail from 20 to almost 500 messages. It was a, a busy time. But one of the most common things I saw on Facebook is people would answer back. The misinformation there was astounding. People would answer, no, you have to be related to her. Oh, you can't do this because you're not her cousin or her sister. There was so much misinformation out there that a lot of people just were like, well, I can't do it. I, 
there, there's no way that I would be um, a match for her. Everyone was concerned with the match. The match was the most important uh-huh. thing. So when they hear match, like I said, that's why I always use words compatible. Because if you start saying match, people are going to look at race. They're going to look at sex, age. They're going to look at height. They look at everything and they say, well, I can't. I get We're too different. Genetics is a very involved thing. But with the help of these immunosuppressant drugs, there are many people who can donate kind of across these variances. And it is just a lack of knowledge out there that people don't know that this is something that they can do. I'll give you one more example. I had a friend who whose grandma needed a kidney. She comes from a family of more than 50 grandchildren. Yes, that's how many they had, 50 grandchildren, a lot of brothers and sisters and aunts. She went on Facebook to say, can anybody donate to my grandma? I emailed her back and said, you have 50 cousins. Have any of you been tested? She said, oh, no, we didn't think that we could because she has a genetic disease. So we thought that we would all be ruled out. Uh, Not so. Not so. Found a donor right within the family. Uh, that's That's really proactive of you. I love that example. I have another theory that if companies were willing to give living kidney donors or liver donors, three to four weeks of paid sick leave, that we could actually eliminate this list combined with some education, we could eliminate our list in about two years in this country. How common is it to see people get special sick leave for living donation and how important do you think it is? That's a great question. Uh, One of the concerns once people got past the emotional response and going through their testing was, okay, I'm going to be out of work possibly for two weeks after this surgery. If I don't have enough vacation or short-term disability, this may cause some things to back up. As you know, a lot of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. They're making it, but if you know they were to lose any of their funds, it would be something that would put their family or lifestyle at risk. So we would get a lot of those questions. And the community is working on some solutions. There have been um, communities that are petitioning the government saying, hey, can there be some type of tax credit that if somebody donates, they can claim this on their taxes for some type of deduction or giving the, the businesses some type of benefit if there are donors within their community, they will be able to not take a financial hit. I think we're getting much closer to where we were in the past. And I, I think you're right. Taking that financial burden off of a lot of people, I think we would see a lot more people stepping forward. That's wonderful. Thanks. And I'm glad you mentioned that insurance will cover these costs, either of the recipient or of the donor. So thanks for mentioning that also. I'm just curious. This is my last question. This podcast is about leadership. And when I listen to you and I've heard so many people talk about you, I know that you're an amazing leader in this field. Thank you. I'm curious what you think makes you really well suited to advance this issue in our society. Well, one of the reasons I'm so passionate uh, about this field is just that it is, it's one of those, I think that the best type of education or charity that you can do is 
the, when this, the individual is empowered. Um, and those are usually the best type of results is when you're able to give someone tools to help themselves and they usually take it further and beyond anything that you can extrapolate on and they're the most successful. And that was one of the reasons I loved the Living Donor Champion program that we started at the university. I considered myself under the direct tutelage of some of the best minds in transplant medicine, Dr. Egal Kam, who's a pioneer, Dr. Liz Pomfret, Dr. Alexander Wiseman, the medical director, they never pushed anything aside. They directly taught me if I had questions, they were detailed and I just soaked it all up and I was able to figure out a way to educate these patients from their direct leadership. What I found with Living Donor Champion is by giving those patients the tools to offset any concern. They were able to find donors for their loved ones and I wanted to do the same thing within communities and going, I spoke to churches about this, to YMCA, to book clubs, to knitting clubs. <laughs> One of the things I love about learning is you can sit someplace and come in as ignorant as possible to something that you never knew existed. And by the end of a talk, know something else that you can share with another person. It's just having a passion for something that you know works. I worked with some of the greatest um, at the hospital, and I just was, I feel like I was taught well enough that I was able to, um, to teach some of the, the, the population. And I was just proud of that. Those, those mm -hmm. doctors and surgeons really made sure that they, they poured into their staff. So they had a very educated staff that was able to, in their own right, be advocates for the program uh, for which they work. Oh, Nash, this has been so inspiring. Thank you so much for your time. And as somebody with polycystic kidneys myself and, and a likely need for a donor in the future, just thank you for your dedication to this cause that you sort of accidentally walked into. Oh, thank you so much, Sue. I just want people to know that they can visit the National Kidney Foundation, which is kidney org. You can learn all you need about transplantation, organ donation. I wish everybody listening the best of luck. Hopefully get some new donors out of this or at least people who are now educated about it. And I would, uh, best luck to you. And it was a pleasure speaking with you, Sue. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on the Real Leaders podcast and my special mini series on living kidney donation. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed creating it. As always, the Real Leaders Podcast is sponsored by Leadership Camp. If you or someone you know is a leader who wants to be more authentic and more effective and content in their leadership and their life, check us out at www.leadership.camp. If you have any feedback on this episode or just want to get in touch, find me at TellSue on Twitter. And if you'd be good enough to review this podcast on iTunes, well, I can tell you I'd be absolutely delighted. See you next time.